take a look at your uh, sermon notes that you have there. You notice they look a little different. I don't have an opening paragraph there because the opening paragraph for this one would be kind of long. Um, here's what I mean by that. The title of the message today, Come Let Us Renew the Kingdom, is in nature paradoxical. Okay, let's talk about a paradox for just a minute. What is a paradox? The Greeks put together this word that comes from para, this preposition there that can mean to to go beyond or go outside of. And they added that word to the verb for thinking. So in the Greek mind... A paradox or paradoxa is how the word would be pronounced. It means it's contrary to the way we would think. It goes outside of those boundaries for the way we think sometimes, okay? So, G.K. Chesterton was a contemporary of C.S. Lewis. Great writer, great thinker, um, a a tremendous Christian apologist. And, And Chesterton has been called the prince of the paradox, He loved the king's language. He loved the English language. And he loved the way the English language was used in the scriptures. And he called a paradox, truth standing on its head to gain attention. All right, now he just played around with words that way. And in the Bible, when there's seemingly a contradiction, two things that don't seem to go together... We would call those a paradox, and, and those seeming contradictions, as he called them, he was just in love with the Scriptures in that regard, because he said the Bible doesn't pit one truth against another and say that one is false because the other one is true. Here's what he said. In short, Christianity got over the difficulty of combining furious opposites by keeping them both, and keeping them both furious. By furious, he doesn't mean angry. He just means we keep these two truths that seem to be opposite. We keep them in a, in a powerfully um, extraordinary way. So just think for a minute about these paradoxes that Chesterton calls us to. He said, one can hardly think too little of oneself. He also said, one can, think, one can hardly think too much of one's soul. So we look at ourselves and we see ourselves as little, and yet we look at ourselves and see ourselves made in the image of God. That seems to be a paradox. He called the Christian understanding of love or charity a paradox. Listen to what he said. Charity certainly means pardoning unpardonable acts. It means loving unlovable people. He saw the idea of sin and the sinner as a paradox. Here's what he said. Christianity came startlingly with a sword and clove one thing from another. It divided the crime from the criminal. The criminal we must forgive 70 times 7. The crime, he said, we must not forgive at all. We must be much more angry with theft than ever before, yet much kinder to thieves than ever before. There was room, he says, in Christianity for wrath and love to run wild. And the more I consider Christianity, Chesterton said, the more I found that while it established a rule and an order, the chief aim of that order was to give room for good things to run wild. I love that. To give room for good things to run wild. 
Think for a minute. All right, put your thinking caps on. Let's think for a second about biblical paradoxes. The first shall be last. The first shall be last. You find your life by what? Losing it. That makes no sense as we try to think through that. How about this one? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who works in you. Well, which is it? Yes. <laughs> it's both. It's both. All right. Think about this one. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Or how about this one? Where sin abounds, where sin abounds grace in, in the Greek superabounds or abounds more and more. Here's one we struggle with. Let's try this one on for size. Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not listen to God. And then it tells us that God hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he would not listen to God. So this is an example of one of those paradoxes that, man, we really struggle with this. The sovereign calling of God and the reality of human choice. Both are equally true. And in Romans 9, 10, and 11, Paul goes into great lengths to talk to us about this seeming paradox that many of us in our human brain want to try to work out. He says in Romans 9, 17, the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. And Paul goes on to say that if we struggle with that, then in one sense, who are we as the clay to question the potter? He kind of humbles us pretty quickly in that regard. So God is sovereign in these regards, and yet we as humans have individual choices that we make for which we are eternally accountable. And the scripture lays both of those out. Jesus said, no one comes to me except the Father draws them. And then he wept over the city who made the choice not to come to him. So which is it? It's both. It's both. These are biblical truths that we see as paradoxes in the Bible. And they're not easily, if at all, reconciled in our brains because we're just uncomfortable with them. And as I've been working through 1 Samuel, I've come to the realization that I've known really for much of my Christian life is that God does not care whether or not we're comfortable with him. He never intended for us to be comfortable with him. That's, that's, not, the, that's not the goal of salvation. That's not the goal of the gospel. So come, let us renew the kingdom. Look at chapter 12 in 1 Samuel. It's rather lengthy, but we need to take the time to read it. This is called Samuel's farewell address. It actually comes, that chapter division is in a bad place. Of course, the, the original doesn't have a chapter division in it. What Samuel begins there in the end of chapter 11 should go along with chapter 12. All the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. And that was right after he had said in verse 14, Come, let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom. Well, what does that look like? I think chapter 12 shows us. 
Samuel said to all of Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all you have said to me and made a king over you. And now behold, the king walks before you. And I am old and gray, and behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me and I'll restore it to you. They said, you have not defrauded us or opposed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, the Lord is witness against you and his anointed is witness to this day that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, he is witness. So let's fall there. Let's just let's take a second and look at that part of it. So when we say, come, let us renew the kingdom. I hope you recognize that that in and of itself is a paradox. It's a paradox in this way. David will get this promise from God later on in Samuel. Your house and your kingdom will stand before me forever. Forever. It says in the book of Daniel that God's kingdom is an everlasting kingdom that shall never be destroyed. We saw in the book of Revelation, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and his reign shall be forever and ever. So God's kingdom is eternal forever and ever. Jesus said the kingdom of God is at hand. And then he turned around and said, pray for God's kingdom to come and for his will to be done. So how do we renew something that is eternal? How do we pray for the restoration of something That is promised to last forever and ever. Well, what we see here in this first part and indeed in the whole chapter. Is that when we say renew the kingdom. We are praying, repenting. We are seeking the Lord in the sense that his kingdom will be renewed in us. That we will renew our commitment to Christ as our king. To his word is our way, to his kingdom as our focus. We're called to renew our commitment by fearing the Lord and serving him. Okay? Now, I need to point out one other thing that's just foundational to all of this. Why would we want to do that? Why would we want to renew the kingdom? What would motivate us, compel us to do that? Well, the answer is in this text. We will see it in just a minute down at the end in verse 22. Look at it. In 1 Samuel 12, 22, For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. This foundational truth is underneath all of this. And I'll say it again at the end of the sermon, but it's important we recognize this. There is more at stake than Israel's well-being here. There's more at stake here than our personal well-being. In the end, what this boils down to is the fame and glory to God himself. And that he is a covenant-making, promise-keeping God for the sake of his own name. He will not forsake his people. This is an astonishing statement about the purposes of God's sovereign grace. And the sweetness of it, that we are beneficiaries of that grace. It's just an amazing thing to see. So kingdom renewal in this first section 
comes through the legacy of faithful leadership. And that's what Samuel puts before us here. Just what faithful leadership means to the people of God. And there's a courtroom scene here. All right? Words like testify and witness and stand and be still. These courtroom scenes, these courtroom words, that's what's in this chapter here. And the first person that's called to the witness stand, if you will, is Samuel himself. And Samuel stands up in the dock there. He stands up in that witness stand and he says, here I am. Bring the charge. Bring the complaint. If you have anything to charge me with or bring against me, now's your chance. And what's happening here is there's this clear contrast that we see in the words behold. Okay, he says in verse two, behold, the king that walks before you. And then in one sense, he's kind of implying and behold me. So, so here's young, tall, handsome, buff Saul. And here's old, gray Samuel. And he says, look at the difference. Well, I mean, you can see the difference, right? But that's not the difference that he's calling our attention to. He says here, behold, here's the king. We'll talk about him in a minute. But I am old and gray, and my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth. So he says here, examine my ministry. You know that I have been before you from as a young age. God called him out. He said, I have walked. I have lived before you with integrity and with faithfulness. I have walked before you in the public eye. There's no privacy for a prophet. There's no privacy for that one that God has called out in this sense. He lives under a magnifying glass. And he says, examine my life. And this chapter parallels chapter 8, where Samuel made a, a speech there, given the characteristics of a king, and the three words that he used were, take, take, take. He will take from you. He will take your best animals. He will take your children. He will take the best of your crops. Here, he uses that word take again, but he uses it in the opposite sense. I have not taken an ox. I have not taken a donkey. I have not taken a bribe like my sons did. If you know any different or can bring a charge, bring it now. And they can't. In fact, he says there at the end of that passage, the Lord is witness against you and his anointed is anointed as witness to this day that you've not found anything in my hand. And in the Hebrew language, their response is one word. It is not this is witness. It's just witness. It's like, amen, witness. We can't bring a charge against you, Samuel. So there's the picture. That's He's just standing in the dock and saying, look at my life. Reflect on my life. And it's interesting. This is the first time Saul is referred to publicly as the Lord's anointed. And even there again is a paradox. Because what we're going to see later on is that the people wanted a king. And that was a sin of rebellion. And yet God gave them a king. And he gave them a king according to his good purposes, his sovereign purposes, his covenant promises. Which was it? Their choice or his will? Yes. Yes. That's what it was. That's what it was. So the kingdom comes through faithful leadership. Look at the next point, starting in verse 6. Samuel said to the people, The Lord is witness who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now, therefore, stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, 
Then your fathers cried out to the Lord, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt, and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God. And he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord and he said, and they cried out to the Lord and said, we have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jerubbabel and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side. And you lived in safety. Kingdom renewal comes when we remember the history of God's faithfulness. And that's what Samuel does. Samuel was in the dock first, okay? Bring a charge against me. Now he puts God in the dock in one sense. All right? Here he is. Here's your faithful God. Consider, remember what he has done. And so the second party in this trial is God himself. And Samuel vindicates God by telling God's story. And the word he uses there is the righteous deeds of the Lord. And literally it means the righteousness or righteousness plural. How do you say righteousness is is? That's too many S's at the end, right? Righteousness is 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 is. That's what Samuel's saying. Consider all the righteousnesses of God. All the things that God has done for you. And he goes all the way back to the to the Exodus. And he says here that righteousness is the picture of what God has been exhibiting all the way through. Righteousness in the context here is being faithful to the covenant. God is being faithful to his covenant promises. So all of his deeds, in our eyes, both good and bad, are righteous and good. And we see that in this text right here. We see what he says here. God has made promises to protect and bless his people, and that's what he's done. That's all he's done, in fact. And in verse 6, when it says the Lord is witness, again there, the idea, the word is witness is not actually in the Hebrew text. It's just the Lord, Yahweh. What did Yahweh do? Well, he literally raised up or made Moses and Aaron. So God raised up Moses and Aaron in response to what was going on in the lives of his people. And what we have here is a precedent. What we have is a pattern. Do you see it there? The righteous deeds that the Lord performed for you came about when you cried out to the Lord. It says in verse 8, the Lord heard you. The Lord sent Moses and Aaron to deliver you. Verse 9 talks about what had happened in the people's hearts. They had forgot the Lord. And so God then showed his faithfulness. So the faithful care of God is in giving faithful leaders like Samuel, like Moses, like Aaron. Later on, like the judges that he refers to there. Gideon or Jerubbabel, Barak and Jephthah. So God has been faithful to give them leaders. He's been faithful to hear his people when they cry. He's been faithful to when they cry to give them the love that they need. And that comes in the form of discipline sometimes, right? God sold them into the hands of their enemies to discipline them. Just like God says, I led you in the wilderness and fed you with manna. So you would know that man does not live by bread alone. God's redemptive purposes and grace is there even in his judgment and his discipline. So he says this faithful pattern includes this pattern of deliverance. So here's the way it rolls. It's like a record that you keep playing. The people disobey God. 
He judges them, sells them into some kind of captivity or difficulty. They cry out to God. God hears, sends a deliverer to deliver them. They live in peace until they forget God, and it goes back again. And this precedent, God has continued to be faithful. He has never forsaken his own. At the end of Joshua, here's what Joshua says as the people are about to enter into the promised land. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. I'm in Joshua chapter 21. And they took possession of it and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of their enemies had withstood them, and the Lord gave them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Now listen to this next sentence in verse 45. Not one word of all the good promises of the Lord that he made to the house of Israel has failed. All came to pass. Not one word failed. So church, part of what it means to renew the kingdom is just to recount in our own minds God's faithfulness. To remember the 10,000 reasons that we have for giving praise and thanks to God. Starting with the very breath that we draw and then going on from there. Kingdom renewal comes when we remember the history of God's faithfulness. Something else happens when we remember how faithful God is. We see how unfaithful we are, which leads to the third thing. Look at verse 12. So the pattern here is that God leads his people into judgment. They cry out to the Lord, but something's different here. Starting in verse 13. And now behold, excuse me, in verse 12. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Amorites, came against you, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us. When the Lord your God was your king. And now behold, the king whom you have chosen, whom you have asked for. Behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord. And if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Verse 16, now therefore stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord, in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. Kingdom renewal comes when we remember the faithfulness of God. And kingdom renewal will not come until we recognize in light of that faithfulness the reality of our foolish rebellion. The reality of our foolish sin, our, our foolish forgetfulness. So the third party, Samuel's in the dock first. God's in the dock, second, if you will. Thirdly, it's the people that are in the dock. And Samuel is bringing the charge against them. And the charge that he brings against them is forgetfulness. But is it really just a a V8 moment? Ah, man, I should have remembered God. Is Is that what he's talking about here? I don't think so. There's more to here than just a mental lapse, all right? 
Turn over in the book of Deuteronomy for just a second. I'm not going to spend much time there, but turn to the book of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, for instance, we have the great commandment of love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, your might. The commandment to teach and, and, and to, for parents, for moms and dads to teach their children. But down in verse 12 of chapter 6, there's this word that appears. Verse 12 of Deuteronomy 6 says, Take care you sh- lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are around you. So in verse 12 there, we're told, be careful, don't forget the Lord. Turn over to chapter 8. It's repeated here several times. In verse 2, you shall remember the whole way that your Lord, that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years. What's the point there? Remember God's faithfulness. Remember God's faithfulness. Look down in verse 11. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God. Is it a V8 moment? No. Look what he says. By not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Look down at verse 18. The same thing. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it's he who gives you the power to get wealth. Verse 19, if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them. So the pattern here, the picture, forgetfulness here is not a mental lapse. It is a habit. It is a lifestyle. It is a process of making decisions based on what I want, when I want it, and how I want it. Not what God would want for me according to his will and ways. It is a pattern of me being the decision maker and not allowing God to direct those decisions. When we are living our lives for ourselves the way we would want to, the way the culture would tell us, we have forgotten God. Or as one commentator said, we have forgotten God's godliness. God's godness. We have made him little, small enough to stick in our pocket or in our phone and pull him up when we need him on Sunday morning. But we forget him the rest of the That's what this forgetfulness is. It is, in fact, rebellion. That's what the picture gives us here. So, there's this unresolved paradox back over in chapter 12. And that unresolved paradox is what we see here of you have requested a king. And, and, and the request here is just shocking. It's, it's ugly what, what verse 13 says. In the past, when you were up against enemies, you called out to the Lord. In verse 13, when Nahash came against you, in verse 12, rather, and there's a pattern here. Nahash has been around for a while. The chronology of Samuel is sometimes difficult to reconcile. But Nahash clearly has been around long enough that what happens in chapter 11 and chapter 12 go together. And when Nahash comes and presents this problem to the people of Israel... They don't cry out to the Lord. They cry out for a king. And they don't just cry out for any king. They want a king like the nations. And the king like the nations that I believe they have in mind is Nahash, who is cruel and wicked. And not only is he cruel and wicked, but listen, they want a king like Nahash, even to the extent of letting Nahash be their king. Go ahead, Nahash. Pluck out our right eye and we will serve you. It's it's crazy. Not only do we want a king like him, we'll let that guy be our king. That's how far forgetfulness goes. 
So it's extraordinary. The charge against them is just, there's no defense. This accusation is brought, and this warning, the warning in verse 14, fear the Lord and serve Him, and obey His voice. It's the same thing God has said all the way through His covenant with His people. And if you will do this, and if your king will do this, what an understatement. It will be well. It will be well. But if you don't, it won't. It won't. So there's this verbal admonition, there's this verbal warning, but then there's also a visual warning. Do you see what happens there? Stand still and see this great thing that the Lord's about to do before your eyes in verse 6. And so is it not the wheat harvest? This is the dry season. Commentators say that what's about to happen here would be like a foot of snow in Miami in July. I suppose it's possible. But I'm just saying, I know, but that's kind of because this is the dry season. This is not when it rains and thunders in that land. And God says, stand. I mean, Samuel says, stand still and see what God is doing. But here's the deal. Don't get caught in this. This miracle, if you will, this thunderstorm that comes is not a sign of blessing. Okay, it's a warning. They've been following the Baals and the Ashtaroth. They've been involved in that sexual cult that says if these gods come together sexually, then the the heavens. What God is saying is that no, no, no. The rains and the thunder comes from me. It gives life, but it can take it in a heartbeat. And my judgment will come. And if you lack the, the understanding of that, if my verbal warning is not enough, here's a visual warning for you. And the thunder and the rain came that day, and it says that all the people feared the Lord and Samuel. Which, by the way, in Exodus 14, is the same response that Moses got. They feared the Lord and Moses. Here's the the deal. Here's the point. Kingdom renewal comes when we see the faithfulness of God, and in light of that, see our own unfaithfulness. When we recognize that our forgetfulness is not a mental blank. It is a lifestyle, it's a pattern of just walking contrary to God's leadership and guidance and will for our lives. And what's even more amazing than what would seem to be just the stupidity of that on their part is, is, is God's grace. Look at what comes next. Now, he tells them to stand still. The storm comes. And in verse 19, all the people said to Amiel, this is, this is the nation standing before him. And in one voice, it seems, they cried out to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. So, kingdom renewal comes when we see the reality and the certainty of God's sovereign grace. What a gift this is. The rebellion has taken such a hold on them. Do you notice what they say there? Pray to the Lord your God. Sin does this to us. 
It causes us to forget not just God in his ways. It causes us to forget who we are. And so this pattern of godlessness, this pattern of forgetfulness among the people of God has gone on so long that they've been lost their identity as God's own people. Pray to the Lord, Samuel, to your God. Now, earlier in Samuel, pray to the Lord, our God, but here it's your God. I think that's symptomatic of what's going on in their hearts. Samuel, pray to this God of yours that he'll not kill us because they recognize that's what they deserve. And here's another paradox. Are you ready for this? Look at verse 14. I just I just read it. Fear the Lord God. Fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice in verse 14. Now, what does he say over here in verse 20? Do not be afraid. Come on, Samuel, which is it? Are we to fear him or not? Yes. <laughs> yes, once again. There's a paradox there. It's what John Newton says in a verse that we didn't get to in Amazing Grace. It was grace that taught my heart to fear. Grace opens our eyes to see the holiness of God. Grace opens our minds to remember the faithfulness of God. Grace opens our hearts to see how unfaithful we are. It's called the gift of repentance. It's called the gift of confession and conviction. It was grace that taught my heart to fear. And then, grace my fears relieved. Thank you, John. What a beautiful truth that is here. So once again, what's at stake here is not just the well-being of the people, because that is tied to that, but what is at stake here is the sovereign purposes of God, that he will not forsake his people for his great name's sake. The reality of this is astounding. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 16, where God has called up this old man and this old woman who are way past the age of childbearing. And God makes a promise to them in a covenant ceremony in Genesis 16, where God says, take a heifer, take a goat, take a turtle dove and a pigeon, cut them in half, lay those halves aside from each other and leave a little walk path through the middle. And the covenant custom of the time was the one who is making the covenant walks through those animal pieces and in essence is saying, may the same thing happen to me as happened to this animals if I break my promise. And in Genesis 16, symbolically God walks through those animals in the form of a smoking pot and a flaming torch. And God says, the God who cannot die, the God who is eternal, the same yesterday and today and forever, God walks through those dead animals and says, may the same thing happen to me if I do not keep my promises to you. God is serious about the glory of his name and upholding his promise. And so the God who cannot die made this covenantal promise to his people who cannot seem to live up to their part of it. And God says, it's not for your sake that I'm doing this. It's for the sake of my great name. My sovereign purposes will stand. And so God makes that promise in Genesis 16, and he lives by that promise throughout the rest of the scriptures. In Psalm 106, the psalmist said, Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love. They rebelled by the sea, by the Red Sea. Yet he saved them. For his name's sake. He saved them for his name's sake. I was reading in, in, in um, Ezekiel this week, in chapter 20, five times in Ezekiel chapter 20, it says the same thing in essence. 
I acted for the sake of my name, God says. God will not forsake his name. Now these paradoxes, go back and read Romans chapter 9. And just see that paradox of God saying, one I have loved, one I have hated. So that my purposes in election will stand. We struggle with that. John Woodhouse in his commentary on 1 Samuel says this. This is not something that fits neatly into the human mind. When Israel's future had been brought to the very brink of disaster by her conduct, in the final analysis, Israel's future rested on something utterly reliable. The gracious will of God to make a people for himself. That is reliable. That is what Paul says in Philippians chapter 1. That he is confident, Paul says. I am confident. I am absolutely sure of this, he says. That he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. God will be faithful to do that. God cannot and will not forsake his own church. Somebody say amen. Because that's the hope we stand on. That's the motive for for us renewing the kingdom and is the means by which we can renew that kingdom. Look at the latter part of this chapter. We'll close here. In verse 23, Samuel says, Moreover, as for me, as for me, he says, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And I will instruct you in the good and right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great thing he has done for you. But if you still act wickedly, you will be swept away, both you and your king. Kingdom renewal that last does require the faithful ministry of gospel ministers. Now let me, let me define what I'm thinking about there. So chapter 12 is a transition in the life of Israel. This is a key moment. Okay, everything from now on is going to be different that we read in the scriptures in regard to Israel and their monarchy. So in chapter 12, there's a transition. But listen, it's not a termination. Okay, it's important to recognize that. God's faithfulness has been seen in the faithful ministers and prophets and priests that he raises up. And that's not going to change. But going forward, Samuel will not be the primary leader. He steps out of the center stage and Saul... Or the king steps onto the stage. But Samuel is not silent from here on out. He doesn't just ride off into the sunset and disappear. He will continue to speak God's word into God's leaders. He will continue to be a spiritual leader in that nation. But he'll be serving in a different way. But here he says, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord in these days to come in my future ministry, he says, by ceasing to pray for you and by instructing you in the good and right way. The the ministry of prayer, intercession, and the ministry of instruction, teaching the word. The ministry of a priest, praying. The ministry of a prophet, teaching. And, And thus saying the Lord is what he says there. So that's what Samuel says. I will be faithful to do that. This is a mirror for us in some ways. We have to be careful not to just take this and... Say, okay, this this means we need to do this. But it's important we recognize first this. This is a mirror, if you will. It is for me anyway. It's a reminder for those of us who are called to shepherd the flock of God. And by that I mean as elders, as deacons, as teachers. That includes primarily the ministry of prayer and the word. 
It's a mirror for us to, to look. Can we say, can I stand before the Lord and say, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you and instructing you? I cannot stand up here and say, I've been faithful in every aspect of that. But it's still, it's still there. And we're called to do that. The other way that this is a mirror is a reminder for those of us who are called to listen, shepherd and serve in our families, moms and dads. Grandparents, far be it from you that you should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for those entrusted to your care and by ceasing to instruct them. Because that's a call that we've been given as parents and grandparents, as family members. But it goes further. It's also a mirror for all of us within the body of Christ who are called to be ministers to one another. Ministry of intercession. And ministry of instruction, speaking the word into each other's lives. But primarily, this is not just a mirror. It is a massive sign pointing to Jesus. It's pointing to Jesus, who is our perfect priest, our perfect prophet, our perfect king. And notice that Samuel's warnings here says, fear the Lord and serve him faithfully. Earlier he had said, Don't turn aside to empty things. The word empty there is the same word used in Genesis 1 describing this cosmos before God spoke it into order and existence. Apart from God, it's just a big black hole of nothingness and emptiness. Apart from his guidance, and some of you know exactly where I'm talking about. You say, man, that's describing my heart. That's describing my life right now. So maybe this message is specifically for you in that regard. Let's think about how to apply this. And I think the application is found in these last two verses. I'm going to use it as the application anyway, okay? Fear the Lord, serve Him faithfully with all your heart, and don't forget. That's what he says there. Fear the Lord and serve Him faithfully with all your heart. And consider the great things He has done for you. That's the picture that we must take away from this. How do we renew the kingdom of God now, a kingdom that is eternal and will never fail? Well, you personally, and you as a mom and dad, or you as grandparents, or you as a family unit, renew the kingdom of God personally now as you renew your life, recommit your life to Christ as your king, and to follow Him as your Lord, to follow His ways and not the world's ways, to recognize that He is the only one who has fulfilled the role of prophet and priest and king perfectly. He holds his priesthood permanently, the writer of Hebrews tells us in seven, in chapter 7. And because he holds it permanently, he continues forever. And the writer says because he continues forever, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to him. The uttermost, that's pretty far. It's pretty long. That's extensive. That's forever and ever. And how does he do that? Well, the writer of Hebrews says, because he always lives to make intercession for us. That's the picture. That's the promise. That's the role of our king. But we're still forgetful, are we not? And let's don't downplay that. I listened to a sermon this week. I read it first and then I listened to it by Kevin DeYoung. He actually preached this sermon last week at his church in Charlotte. It was on Leviticus 20. It's one of the ugliest chapters in the Bible. But listen to what he said about this, the deadliness of sin 
DeYoung said, too often we use lesser kinds of language instead of talking about sin. We might use words like struggle, brokenness, and weakness. Sin involves struggle, and it involves brokenness, and it involves weakness. And there's a time and a place to use words like that. Yet if we only, he says, refer to sin in that kind of therapeutic language, we're not doing justice to the way the Bible speaks. The Bible uses angular language. Sin, iniquity, transgression, wickedness, evil, rebellion. These words, he says, have a vertical focus. Words like struggle and brokenness and weakness, they have an internal focus. They describe my experience. But the Bible wants us to understand how God sees these actions. And God sees it as wickedness, rebellion, idolatry, and spiritual adultery. So church, our forgetfulness is rebellion. It's wicked. It is sinful decisions to walk contrary to God's ways. We need to see it for what it is. It calls for repentance. It calls for crying out to God. Restoring us the joy of your salvation, Lord. Restoring us the joy of your salvation as we see how faithful you are. How covenant promises to you are steadfast and absolutely sure. That's the promise that he gives us. That's the God that we serve. That's why Jesus made this final command to us today. Not final in a biblical sense, but I think it's final for us to leave it here. Worry and anxiety... I'm sorry, but it's sinful if we are losing sight of God's faithfulness as we focus on issues here to that extent. And Jesus basically said, don't be anxious. Don't be anxious, he said, about what we'll eat or what we'll drink or what we'll wear. He says the world, the Gentiles seek after those things. Your covenant-keeping, eternally faithful God knows what you need. He will hold you. He will never let you go. He will never forsake you. He knows that you need them all. So what is Jesus' word to us today as we close? Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these other things will be added to you. Let's pray. Father, I pray for your Holy Spirit to just take this word and plant it deep in our hearts this morning. Father, I thank you for reminding us today of your kingdom, of our King. Thank you, King Jesus, that yours is the power and the glory forever and ever. Thank you that your covenant-keeping promise to those who have put their faith and trust in you is eternal and will never be broken. And I pray, Lord, today for someone whose maybe their soul is in that dark, chaotic place like the creation before it was created. And God, that emptiness marks their life. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you'd speak salvation into their souls right now. You'd show them your glory as it was seen on the cross. You'd show them your substitutionary death in their place. And your resurrection life is the life that they can have. Father, I pray that you'd do that today. That they would, by faith, confess their sin, repent of it, and trust in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And then that we as your people who are called by your great name, God, would remember how much you're going to esteem and glorify that name through the praises of those who love you and are called according to your purposes. 
You're going to do that forever and you seek to do that now. So God is your people. Restore to us the joy of your salvation. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.